Hello and welcome to Agora Politics. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Eric Kaufman. Professor Kaufman is Professor of Politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and the author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Eric's research interests focus on demography, ethnicity, nationalism, and the study of white ethnic majorities in Western countries. We talk about what Eric lays out as the two white shifts that are coming, why support for right-wing populism in Western nations is driven by demographics, identity, and attachment, not necessarily economics, the causes of the dearth of scholarship on ethnic majorities, left modernism, the mutability of white ethnic identity, we touch briefly on critiques of critical race theory, intersectionality, and some of the responses to these lines of inquiry. We deal with the myth of conspiratorial white genocide and learn why Professor Kaufman sees the embrace of a symmetric multiculturalism as the only rational, humane path forward. I really enjoyed this interview, despite the touchiness and sensitivity surrounding many of these topics. I learned a lot from his book and this conversation. I hope you will as well. Now, I give you Professor Eric Kaufman. Eric, welcome to Agora Politics. Great to be here, Alex. Great to have you, Eric. Uh, I wanted to have you on, uh, in particular, to talk about your book, White Shift, Immigration, Populism, and the Future of White Majorities. Um, before we dive right into the book and uh, your sort of core ideas on the topic, I have many, many questions um, regarding the book. I just want to preface this conversation, and by the way, I will also be adding uh, a slight introduction to this um, before uh, the final recording is released, um, but I just wanted to preface real quick that uh, this is a very, very interesting book in that it's talking about immigration, it's talking about populism, it's talking about um, the issues of white culture and white identity and uh, demographics in particular in the United States and the United Kingdom and Canada. Um, and I want to encourage our listeners before we get into this conversation to reflect on what some of their preconceived notions about those topics and even the approach to broaching them in the first place in conversation might be. Because I think Eric's treatment in the book, uh, as you'll learn hopefully throughout our conversation here today, is extremely um, subtle and and very nuanced, and also really does a good job of uh, of working through these issues in a way that makes a, a reasonable argument that might not be uh, intuitive at first. So it's slightly, I think, counterintuitive. But uh, anyway, I'm just going to go ahead and give Eric a a chance to introduce himself real quick, um, and we'll start start getting into it. Eric, uh, do you want to give the uh, listeners just a brief rundown of um, your sort of main areas of interest um, as an academic? Yeah, sure. I mean, I've, I've been an academic for about 20 years, and um, my main areas uh, of focus tend to be on national identity and where it intersects with uh, demographic forces like immigration, for example, and ethnic change. Um, I've also looked a fair bit at uh, the way demographic forces interact with uh, religion and religiosity, 
and, and I've also done some more specialist things like looking at Northern Ireland politics, um, uh, which is connected also to, I suppose, this interest in uh, what's known as dominant ethnicity or majority ethnicity, which is really looking at ethnic majorities and their identities in politics. Mm. Yeah, and so one of the things that I thought was interesting um, that was sort of brought up in your book is that ethnic majorities as an area of study have kind of been uh, neglected slightly in the academy due to the fact that um, I guess there's a presumption that since they are already part of the pre-existing, you know, order of things that they're not really worth studying or they're sort of, you just sort of absorb um, information about them from, from the ether. What do you think yeah. about the lack of scholarship with regard to ethnic majorities? Yeah, I think that this, this kind of grows initially out of the fact that people tend to study what's different and you don't tend to study the the background group in a way, the background noise. Um, and so even the term ethnic was often used to almost implicitly mean minority, and it wasn't really connected to majorities until very recently, even mm -hmm. though actually the definition of ethnicity is to do with communities that identify on the basis of shared ancestry. And so majorities are as much of an ethnic group as, as minorities are, and, and they have the same beliefs about origins and stories about their peoplehood and so on. Um, and so I think that's that's a major factor. The, the other thing is, you know, historically, particularly in Europe, um, nation states, the territorial units have tended to be relatively homogenous and certainly have, or particularly in Western Europe, and they've also had limited immigration. Um, and so what that tended to mean was People just focused on the state and then ethnic minorities. And in the United Nations, for example, um, states are recognized. There's national self-determination. And then there's also recognition of minorities and indigenous peoples. But there is a real blank when it comes to ethnic majorities. Uh, they're not recognized in international law because they didn't need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, this is a real blank spot. And it's to some degree, you've had people trying to fill it in different ways. You know, you have critical race theory trying to say, well, problematizing it and talking about whiteness. And, and, and that in, initially would have been a way to, or at least they, there was some curiosity about uh, looking at something that was seen to just be normal. Amer say normal Americanness is white. You know, that idea of problematizing the normal and saying, no, there's a distinct white whiteness to this, but that quickly becomes captured by a, a radical agenda, which is simply to criticize uh, and, and not to actually study this, this group on its own terms uh, as similar to other groups. Um, okay. So yeah, th there's a whole, uh, I've, I've done a book on, on uh, ethnic identity, which looks at dominant minorities and majorities. It's a very common phenomenon across the world and historically. Okay. Yeah. So we'll get into the, um, the critical race theory uh, critique as as well as um, the development of of left modern of what you call left modernism in the book. Um, but before we do jump jump into into those things, um, do you want to just briefly state, if you will, the core um, thesis that uh, comes out of White Shift, the 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 book that's our our core, our main topic today? 
Yeah, so this is really, first of all, I'm taking um, white ethnic majorities in Western countries as my object of study, not necessarily nation states. Um, and I'm suggesting that, that uh, there's two white shifts, if you like, the white shift 1.0 and the 2.0. So the white shift 1.0 is about the decline of ethnic majorities within their nation states um, in Western Europe and North America. And if we look at Canada, the US and New Zealand, those will all be approaching about 50% uh, white majority by about 2050. So they'll pass that majority minority point mid-century, whereas the main immigrant receiving nations of Western Europe, it'll be more like the end of the century. Uh, and it's this shift from societies that were very close to ethnically homogenous. Even the U.S. was 85 percent um, non-Hispanic white around 1960. Uh, but these shifts are really what is ultimately behind the politics of populism and polarization, I would argue, um, mm. because it's, it's about varying responses to these shifts and how that interacts with uh, ideology. The, there is in the white shift 2.0, which is a more futuristic uh, approach, which is to say, well, what's going to happen next century? And there I'm actually arguing that some of the division will uh, begin to decline because of assimilation and melting into uh, ethnic majorities through large-scale intermarriage. So the majority of the population will be mixed race. Uh, sort of early to mid next century uh, in countries such as Britain and the US. And that, that will change the dynamics. But I'm arguing that that mixed race majority will come to take on the uh, myths and memories of the current white majorities, um, even though they will be racially uh, mixed. So that those are really the two uh, key components of the book. Um, although I spent a lot more time on the first, the White Shift 1.0, which is what we're living through. Yeah. So uh in the book you know you talk about um the populist response to this um to this uh demographic contraction um and you know you talk about trumpism uh here in the united states and of course the exit phenomenon in the uk as well um but i think one interesting aspect of this is that you're making the case that the rise in ethno-traditional nationalism is not actually driven primarily by economics, even though that that becomes kind of the public facing, um, I guess, uh, you, you call it, I, I believe, the sublimation of it. Um, do you want to go into um, a little bit of an explanation of, of that and maybe even some of the, the data on that as well? Yeah, I think it's, it's pretty clear uh, that both uh, the rise of right wing populism in Europe uh, the Brexit phenomenon and the Trump phenomenon are, all have very similar kinds of predictors, and they, those are mainly cultural attitudes. Um, mm. A question like um, "things in America were better in the past" is an is a really strong predictor of uh, Trump voting. And when you say to people, "Okay, well, do you mean that American culture was better in the past, or the American economy?" was better in the past. It's the American culture question that really gets to it. The correlation with um, views on immigration. And views on immigration are not really driven by economics. Um, and a good example of this would be if you ask Brexit supporters, um, how important do you think the problem of uh, pressure on public services is? Uh, you know, you get about a 50 out of 100 score. If you say immigrants putting pressure on public services, it's sort of 70 out of 100. 
and logically the part of that pressure on public services problem that's accounted for by immigrants must be smaller than the problem itself. So it's not actually the pressure on services per se, but it's actually immigration. A number of studies where you talk about the impact of immigration on the future composition ethnically of the population, you can shift attitudes on, on immigration by points when you do that. So, I mean, I think a lot of the driving uh, force here is around uh, cultural questions, and especially immigration, which is kind of the lightning rod, the, the key symbol of this ethnic transformation of white shift 1.0. Um, so, for example, in Europe, we can look at, uh, you know, if you look at the period from 2013 to 2016, um, you can see immigration levels shooting up to a peak with the migrant crisis in 2015. People's concern over immigration rises along and the populist right rises along with the concern. And so we have this link between demographics uh, and voting for populists, which is very clear. Whereas if, if you look at something economic, like the 2007-8 financial crisis, almost no effect on populist voting anywhere. Uh, and likewise with the Trump vote, um, you, know, you can see these very strong correlations. Who switched, uh, who, who voted for Trump in the primaries, who switched from being an Obama voter to a Trump voter in 2016, one of the strongest predictors there is views on immigration. So, uh, and also views on other cultural matters like political correctness. And this is much stronger. Whereas if you look at income, essentially no difference between wealthier or poorer white Americans in voting for Trump. Uh, and in, in the Brexit vote, there was some difference. Yes, poorer uh, British people were somewhat more likely to vote leave, but it wasn't particularly strong compared to the cultural factors. So you're making the argument then um, that there is an aspect of um, cultural anxiety associated with the shift towards right wing populism, but it's not driven primarily by economic anxiety. Right. Uh, right. As is often suggested. Yeah, that's right. And I think a lot of the any time you see people try and make the case uh, for the economic explanation, it's always using aggregate level data that, in other words, the vote for Trump in this area, which happens to be depressed, or the vote for Le Pen in this part of France, which happens to be ex-industrial, is higher. The yeah. problem with those kinds of analyses is that they tend to con conflate a lot of things. When you're looking at things geographically, so we know, for example, in the U.S., richer places tend to vote Democrat, you know, the Democrats do well in the wealthier parts of the United States, like Massachusetts and California. Um, but at the individual level, richer Americans, at least for a long time, tended to vote Republican. So looking at the, at a map, looking at the aggregates is, is misleading. You have to look at the individual survey data. And then when you do that, you see uh, that a lot of the economic hypothesis actually crumbles. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of um, a lot of progressives, a lot of um, liberals as well, would agree that there is a white cultural anxiety associated with the prospect of um, their demographic contraction. And I'm calling it a contraction because we'll get into the the ways in which not quite going, at least in your in your book, it, it may not turn out exactly how people are thinking it's it's going to turn out. But um, uh, you're making the case that um, whiteness as a concept, when we talk about it, 
is actually mostly about identity and and not necessarily about power. And I think um, that concept strikes people when they hear it for the first time as, um, uh, I mean, I would say problematic um, simply because uh, we know for a fact that, um, you know, the white majority um, dominant cultures in especially in the Anglosphere um, <clears throat> have been around for a very long time. They founded many of the institutions um, that are responsible for a lot of the the racism and cultural issues um, that have gone on for, you know, for the last several hundred years. Um, but you're you're saying here that. There actually is a point in taking this cultural anxiety seriously and in that it's important that we don't simply dismiss it. Um, why why should we take white identity, white symbols, white culture seriously and give air to those concerns? Well, I think I mean, there's a whole there are a number of issues that you you broach there. I think one of the key things to grasp is. That I mean, if we're talking about um, something like white identity, in many ways it's very similar to Hispanic or Black or Asian identity. It is a supra-ethnic identity. So that is, it's a bit like saying I'm European, but I'm also British and I'm also English, and I might even be a Yorkshireman, right? So you've got these identities nested within identities, and the the sort of the racial one is simply at a higher level than the ethnic one. Um, a higher level of abstraction. Yeah, and for, so if you look at surveys that I've done in Canada, the U.S., and Britain, the by far the strongest predictor of how attached people are to being to to their white identity is how strongly attached they are to their ancestry, as for example Irish or Italian or whatever. Um, so if you're really attached to being Irish, then you're going to be much more likely to be attached to being white. If you're really attached to being Cuban, you're much more likely to be attached. To being Hispanic and so on, um, it's not so. It's fundamentally, uh, I would argue, about attachment to um, ascribed a ancestry, right? So this is what I, I would argue is driving it. Now, Ashley Jardina's book, White Identity Politics, and we differ in, in in a number of things, but it is interesting that she really showed the, and, and this is something we know from social psychology that attachment to and dislike of are separate psychological dispositions in most times and places, unless there's a war or something that's a very direct conflict over something consequential. Generally speaking, it's a bit like I'm attached to my family. Does that make me less likely to like my neighbor? Well, actually, the psychological research suggests no, it doesn't. And similarly, if you look at white identification in the US, uh, in the American National Election Survey, people who have stronger white identity do not have, are not cooler towards black or Hispanic Americans. So there isn't that. Uh, attachment to is not the same as dislike of. Uh, and so yet, you're, you're saying yeah. that there's no there's no correlation to necessarily to um, uh, attachment to one's white identity or association with one's identification with one's white identity and um, xenophobia, right, or fear of others. Well, hostility to, attachment to whites is, is not correlated with hostility to, say, black Americans. Um, okay. So if you take a, a white person who's not very attached to being white and, an, and a white person who is very attached to being white, you won't find they differ in their 
feelings towards African-Americans, let's say. So, the, the, and, and actually, this is a general finding. There's a, a paper called um, In-Group Love and Out-Group Hate, I think, by Marilyn Brewer, uh, which makes which which is just covers the general psychological literature on this because attachment develops earlier to the mother and then uh, dislike of the other is a different disposition it, it develops a bit later. Um, now of course that you know sometimes these things are connected in a zero sum way. So the the more attached you are to being Republican, the cooler you feel towards the Democrats and vice versa. So that is a zero sum type of identity, but the racial one is not. And yet, so so part of this is then okay. What do we what do we do with these ethnic and racial attachments? Uh, so attachments that, by the way, majority groups have as well as minorities. Now it's true minorities are more attached to their ethnic identities and racial identities, but it's a sliding scale. So it's sort of 40 to 45 percent or so of whites have a an attachment to their white identity. Uh, and this is pretty common across U.S., Canada, Britain, you know, which, which I, I mean, I can't say my Canadian and British samples were representative. My U.S. one was, um, but still very similar. And, and minorities, it's about 20, 20 points, 30 points higher, something like that. But the point here is that all of these groups are operating somewhat similarly. That is, they're more attached to their ancestry than to their race, but the more attached they are to their ancestry, the more they are attached to their race. So, I, and, and I'm kind of seeing this more as an attachment issue, whereas the politics, whether you're left-wing, right-wing, uh, that has a very small effect on one's degree of white attachment. Um, in, in, in Britain and Canada, I haven't found any relationship at all. And in the U.S., it's simply much smaller than the link to ancestry. So one of the things that I'm trying to sort of get at is to say, well, we need to sort of think about all these identities much more similarly and not have this, uh, what I call asymmetrical, uh, multicultural approach, which treats one as a sort of poisonous thing we want to run away from and the other and the others as things we want to encourage. I think there has to be more of a move towards symmetricality there. Mm -hmm. So I agree with, with that. I think that it's likely that if you keep having this asymmetry in acknowledgement of racial categories, cultural claims, et cetera. Um, it is going to, uh, it's going to breed resentment. Um, do you see the, that, uh, the rise of, um, this, this, what you call the dualism in progressive liberalism, which is this, um, this contradiction, right. Of, the fact that um, other groups, minority groups in particular, are allowed to have a, a racial identity, an ethnic identity, and they're allowed to advocate for it publicly, and yet the the white majority is generally um, uh, derided uh, for for doing so. Um, do you see that as something that's driving the um, the shift to right populist politics? Um, yeah, I, I, I do. I think it's a bit layered. So I, I think ultimately it is. Um, okay. What you what you seem to get I, the other part of I'm the, trying to the, square yeah. that with with the, the fact that the there appears to be no difference with the identification across political lines. Um, sorry, what do you mean by that? Uh, oh, oh, oh I may, see, yes. Maybe I was misinterpreting what you said earlier. Well, no, in the U.S., Democrat, white Democrats are less likely to identify with their white identity than okay. white Republicans. But in Canada and Britain, 
I haven't found political differences. It's not been politicized in that way. Uh, but but it's just that the effect of that is not nearly as strong as the ancestry uh, effect. But but in any case, I do think yeah, this is the this is the sort of communitarian. There's two issues around identity politics, if you like. You know, one is the view that uh, minorities are being encouraged um, by what I call uh, this left modernist ideology. They're being encouraged to have an oppositional view of identity, the and to define themselves in opposition to the white majority, uh, as opposed to what Jonathan Haidt would call a common humanity kind of identity, which is simply pride in one's own culture and uh, his, uh, civilizational achievements. Um, whereas the the sort of majority, the ethnic majority, is being is encouraged essentially to uh, suppress or get away from its identity as a sort of shameful, toxic thing. Um, and so what you have in, in one case is a sort of attempt uh, to push a common enemy form of identity for minorities, and on the other hand, uh, to simply not even allow a common humanity form for majorities. And I think that is leading to resentment. I think it often leads to it in an indirect way. So one way it might do so um, is it might say, well, okay, you can't, we can't have a discussion about immigration or about the national past because that would be insensitive to uh, minority groups. Um, so we're not going to recognize anything positive about the majority uh, or any of its concerns. And so by shutting down that conversation in the mainstream institutions and mainstream parties, you then, it's a bit like, I use the example of, a, uh, let's say you're not allowed to sell liquor in, in any outlet. Well, then black marketeers are going to pop up to provide this. And, and what populist entrepreneurs like Donald Trump or Nigel Farage in Britain or Marine Le Pen, what they're doing is they're supplying something the mainstream is not allowed to supply by political correctness, which is coming out of this ideology, right? Which is setting the bounds of debate, uh, the allowable, um, that what's known as the Overton window of acceptable discourse. So that Overton window is being narrowed, and what that means is more and more topics are falling outside the Overton window, the bounds of polite debate. And those topics are typically related to the concerns often of majorities that are culturally based. Um, and so what this does is it simply creates a market for populism. Um, and then it sets into to, to spot, you know, it sends us, uh, sets into motion a kind of backlash effect and a backlash to the backlash. And so you now you get Trump and then you get the uh, backlash to Trump and so on and so forth. And that creates the conditions for uh, polarization. Um, do you want to um, briefly go over the this term that um, I think both of us have used at this point, uh, left modernism? Because uh, I have some I have some questions about that that terminology in and of itself, but also I think the way in which you trace the intellectual history uh, in in the book is is uh, quite quite good. Um, I've seen a lot of people try to attempt to sort of pin down the cultural or not cultural the um, intellectual lineage of uh, the current trends of let's say critical race theory or anti-racism. Uh, in particular in, in leftist politics and in leftist uh, academic academia. Um, but you you trace it back to um, at least uh, 1965 and um, the civil rights, the I guess post-civil rights era. Um, and 
you know, may, maybe arguably a little bit further if you uh, if you wanted to go into, um, you know, Protestantism and its its role there. Do you want to just briefly um, go over what what we mean by uh, left modernism? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the first thing to appreciate is is that this story is is has not been told nearly enough. Um, the role of the evolution of left liberalism, the fact that we are living through a peak of influence of this particular ideology uh, is not, often not appreciated. Um, we're not. This is not socialism. This is the first point uh, that really this is a this is quite a separate phenomenon from socialism. What it is is it's a hybrid of two things: uh, a long liberal tradition, which is about uh, fear of majorities, particularly the tyranny of the majority, and protectiveness towards minorities, starting with dissenting uh, Protestants and heretics, including later Catholics and Jews, then moving on to uh, racial minorities, women, sexual minorities. So these are all um, these are all coming out of liberal politics, a politics that's designed to ensure equal individual rights for minority groups, and I think has done an enormous amount of good. Um, what you then get is those categories, which are more cultural than class-based, being repurposed um, and by people who, are, who draw elements from socialism around victim-oppressor, uh, around of, uh, being with the movement of history, being in the vanguard of history, making revolution. That comes from socialism, from Marxism, and those ideas from socialism are then fused with the cultural categories from liberalism. Uh, to provide this new ideology, which I term left modernism, and which kind of has its origins early in the 20th century, but really takes off in the 1960s. Um, if you go back to the United States early in the century, when there was large-scale immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, mainly Catholics, some, some Jewish immigration, into a mainly Anglo-Protestant society, um, you have the first left-wing intellectuals, again, mainly Anglo-Protestant intellectuals like Randolph Bourne, who who view this immigration in a very positive light and think, wow, this diversity uh, is going to help us, we Anglo-Protestants, get away from our boring, confining, uh, not very interesting culture, and uh, we need to actually, and this is a much more interesting way to be American. So that is kind of the beginning uh, with Randolph Bourne around 1916, and he talks about people assimilating, you know, he sees this is terrible, and he ta he talks about um, immigrants or their descendants who assimilate as quote unquote cultural half breeds. Uh, he wants them to retain their culture, but he wants the Anglo Protestants uh, to more or less be post ethnic and slough off their uh, their culture, which he sees as parochial. And so there's there's a very different attitude between majorities and minorities. The majority culture is something awful to be derided and to get away from. The minority culture is interesting and stimulating. Um, and that's the beginning of what I would term asymmetrical multiculturalism, which is the sort of outlook that we see today, really, in terms of that disparate treatment of majority and minority culture. Um, now, this was only a tiny, you know, there's only a small number of people that adhere to these sort of bohemian uh, left modernist ideas, where they're very much about uh, defending and promoting uh, minority categories. It's not yet got the sort of 
strong uh, politically correct feel that it does post the 1960s, but these are just the beginnings. Uh, then what happens is you start to get, with the Second World War, you start to see an increased use of the term fascist being applied in a very broad brush way by the late 30s to even people who are advocating for a kind of liberal nationalism in art, people like Thomas Hart Benton, um, the artist, uh, people who write, who, who, who do American scene art. Um, and so that term fascism comes into greater use in this very small bohemian um, sphere of what was known as the lyrical left. And this is, a, this is the left that rejected ultimately communism and class-based socialism, embraced uh, cultural diversity and cosmopolitanism, mm -hmm. uh, but also brought in some of the lexicon from Marxism, such as accusations of fascism being applied willy-nilly. So we're starting to see kind of a many of the elements that characterize the present day coming into alignment. Uh, but it's only really with the 1960s that, you know, with the expansion of the university sector and television, uh, that you start to see these ideas becoming more entrenched. And again, this is not socialism. It's distinct from, from socialism. There, there may be some shade into anarchism, but a very distinct hybrid ideology emerges out of the Second World War, and particularly from the 1960s, as the dominant ideology in elite institutions. That ideology of left modernism is what we're living through today. And it is what has set a lot of the parameters, uh, the restrictions on acceptable discourse uh, on the Overton window and so on that has allowed for the rise of populism. Right. So also of note in the post-war period, you have this sort of reordering or almost reconstruction of you know, uh, particularly on the European continent of what it means to be European. Um, there's a sort of rejection of the traditional ethnic identities and this turn towards cosmopolitanism and, and embedded in that an idea of kind of like the future European man, almost like Nietzsche's last man, who is going to be, you know, post-national, um, cosmopolitan, you know, um, post-racial um, and that that also ties into sort of this ideology that wants to kind of separate people from their um, their cultural their cultural groundings. Um, yeah, I mean, there's two real aspects with left modernism. One is the sort of left part, which is about uh, e equality between groups and e trying to raise the status of the weak and weaken the strong. But then there's also the modernist part, which is um, about anti-tradition, um, sort of surmounting the past, getting away from community towards individualism. And those are both very important. They're both equally important concepts in left modernism. So, for example, when the social, the communists said in, in under Stalin, they said, well, uh, we're not going to allow modern art and experimentation. It's got to be proletarian art only. That was a major break. And so a lot of the uh, people who had been attracted to the utopianism of, of Marxism and, and communism suddenly said, well, wait a minute here. I mean, a big part of who we are is kind of this Freudian experimental modernism. And so they therefore turned away from communism because of its rege communism rejected modernism. Uh, so then what you get is this hybrid of, of, of left modernity. And yeah, in Europe, 
the way that expresses itself politically is more through pan-Europeanism and the idea of um, a European, what becomes the European Union. So mm-hmm. erosion of political yeah. frontiers. Immigration was really not a not significant uh, an issue uh, in Europe really until we get into the sort of 1960s in many cases. So that really was ethnic diversity wasn't on their minds, but it was much more about pacifism and it's about sort of the blurring of, of political boundaries between states. Whereas in the U.S., this is why I think more the U.S. is more important. Uh, the American history is, offers more lessons for where we are now because the U.S. was dealing with immigrant ethnic diversity at a much earlier stage. And therefore, the political theories of multiculturalism were developed in the U.S. first, whereas the European uh, theories were more about how to govern uh, sort of native territorialized ethnic groups within, say, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, for example. And I think that simply has less relevance uh, for the kinds of issues that we're facing today. Um, so we, you're talking about this um, this ascendant culture and um, the sort of apex of the of it in in this cultural moment that we're in, and I would agree with that as well. Um, in your book, you cite um, you cite uh, philosopher John McWhorter, um, who I, I I'm familiar with his arguments as well. Uh, in saying that um, anti-racism is, in itself is sort of the highest value of this left modernist ideology. Um, McWhorter, I believe, has called called it a religion. People have compared it to a religion. I've had James Lindsay on, who's uh, call, called it a cult. Um, what is the deal with um, that particular value rising to the to the top of the heap, um, and why do you think it's happening now? Well, I think, first of all, I think there's more commonality than people appreciate between, say, the late 1960s period and the post-2015 period. And, and the way I sort of disagree a little bit with Jonathan Haidt's view that we're seeing something very distinctive with the iGen who, who have not been allowed to play outside and ride their bikes and all these things and therefore are more fragile. I, I actually think... If you go back to the late 60s and look at what the student revolts were doing, uh, the student movement was doing, uh, so much of what we're seeing now was was going on then, occupations, the irrationality, the, the, the imperviousness to reason, the kind of erosion of free speech rights of professors, uh, not allowing com- companies to come on campus to recruit, all of these I mean, kinds of... The Black illegal- Panthers were way more extreme than yeah. some of the groups that are running around now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people who would come into buildings with guns, into university buildings, occupy for, for months, demand, you know, 50 black studies professors admit every black student to the, you know, I mean, much in many ways more extreme than, than um, Evergreen State and Charles Murray and, and, and all of these things. So, so I think that really the paradigm emerges in the late 60s, this kind of irrationalism and also the preeminence of the the what I would call the holy trinity of race gender and sexuality now race clearly is comes out first in terms of sacredness um, so you can't discuss race issues objectively that is now a sacred value there are accepted scripts that you need to bow down to and adhere to I mean McWhorter's really excellent on this so this is these are uh, sacred values are not meant to be debated empirically. They're just simply meant to be accepted. Um, but I think 
the only reason I would qualify McWhorter is I think that sexuality and, and gender are also important, not just race. But I think he's right that the religion of anti the, 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 the anti-racism is at the top of the totem pole and the hierarchy of values. Um, so I think he's correct in that regard. But I think we have to also step back even from those that holy trinity to say, well, yes, the, this secular religion is focused on those particular sacred values. And things like ableism and fat, fatism and, and, and all of these things, yes, there's a lip service paid to them, but they're not seen, they're not as central to the politicking of, of this movement. Uh, but equally, I think it's important to, to understand that it's not just about identity politics, you know, black people and gay people and whatever, just agitating for their rights. That's not what's going on. There's actually a very definite hierarchy. So, um, for example, a feminist movement can be split by black feminists accusing white feminists of being racist. Mm -hmm. It's much more difficult for a black movement to be split by female black activists accusing male black activists of being so, male. So this is, this is the intersectional, this is intersectionality at work or what I think Brett Weinstein calls the intersectional stack where certain identities yeah. are privileged over others. And therefore when it comes down to zero sum dynamics where you're going to spend your attention, your time, your efforts. Uh, you're saying that race comes comes at number one at the top. Yeah, and, and and because this is so, you know, the joke about the oppression Olympics, but there is a definite uh, totem pole. And I think the way we can understand the whole dynamics of this is thinking through the key core uh, principles. The liberal principle is minority is good, needs protection, majority is oppressive and bad. So that's that's one, um, that's the liberal side. Then the, you have the, the left side, which is um, victim-oppressor. So you've got an oppressor and an oppressed. Uh, so it's, it's a combination of the majority-minority thinking out of liberalism and the oppressor-oppressed thinking uh, from socialism that are fusing together. And so really it then comes down to which groups can be seen to have endured more trauma and less trauma. Now, of course, the issue is also one of which groups are more politically useful. I mean, we, we, it may be that uh, people who are mentally ill have endured the, the worst trauma of anybody, but they're not a politically useful or ideologically useful group, and therefore they're not going to be central in the same way that racial groups who are better able to organize and mo uh, mobilize are. So that's another factor. But what you have ultimately here is is an ideology that orders the different identity groups. So it's not just about identity, narrow identities. It's actually much more about overall ideology. Uh, so that, that will explain, for example, why fa a feminist might take a back seat to the claims of the trans movement, which would make absolutely no sense from a purely identitarian point of view. But it does make sense when you think about this ordering of victimhood and oppression. Uh, there you could say, okay, well, maybe we're a bit more privileged than these people, so we have to take a back seat. So there is a sort of logic uh, that runs through the entire ideological system. Um, and yeah, so, so we've identified this ascendant ideology, um, and we've talked a little bit about the cultural um, issue of, of majority White, white populations and what that means. Um, you think that this culture of anti-racism that's been built up um, and is very, very popular, especially in elite circles and in academia, 
um, and and has sort of spilled out, I would argue, into into the the, the general public consciousness. I mean, I have you know friends of mine who are reading you know Kendi and so forth, right. um, <laughs> and uh, you know they don't really like when I when I come to them and I say look, this is intersectionality. This is, uh, this is anti-racism. It has these roots in these, you know, neo-Marxist movements and so on and so forth. And look, they're, they're borrowing from postmodern epistemology. Like, you know, they don't know what I'm talking about. Um, they just think, look, I, I'm not a racist. I don't like racism. And this is just a book about how I can be a, you know, a better anti-racist. And why wouldn't that be a good thing? It's sort of like the, the conflation of, you know, Antifa, what you're not anti-fascist. Right. Um, and, (laughs) Um, I, I found that just in my personal relationships, it's quite difficult to broach these topics with people who aren't very familiar with them. Um, but one of the things that I found interesting in your book is that there's this widespread, you, you argue, um, preference falsification, not only among um, uh, large m- numbers of whites, but also among the minority populations in terms of their own um, regard for for white values and for even the white majority itself. Do you want to talk about that a little? Yeah, I mean, I, so one part of this I haven't thought to as much is is the issue of national identity, which is the whole territorial political unit, like U.S., the United States, for example. So minorities are in, a, in an interesting position because um, what you see is that there's a significant, what I call ethno-traditional national identity. I mean, in nationalism studies, there's often this term civic versus ethnic nationalism. And um, the idea of, of ethnic nationalism is that only members of the ethnic majority are seen to be equal members of the nation. Um, you know, this is clearly a, a regressive uh, form of nationalism and which should be condemned. Um, but what I sort of point, what I point out is equally that the ethnic composition of a society say, having a majority and having a minority, the historical uh, ethnic composition is a component of national identity, just as the landscape, uh, the accent, uh, the food of society, all of these, what, what are known as everyday symbols of nationalism. So it's not just the American Constitution and the flag, but it's all of these kind of everyday symbols, sports and food, and all of these things make up the texture of national identity. Um, now, of course, that's going to vary for people, but one part of that texture is the ethnic composition of a country. Now, of course, that can change and shift and over time, but um, minorities can be attached, you know, for example, a Hispanic, in particular Hispanic and Asian mm-hmm. citizens may be attached to a picture of America that involves a white majority or at least a significant white population. Um, and indeed, this is what you see in some surveys. Uh, it's quite remarkable. We see it in Canada as well that minorities, particularly those who are uh, who want less immigration very much, part of part of that is because they're attached to the country they know, which involves a particular ethnic composition. So, for example, you know, soon after Charlottesville, um, something like, uh, you know, f- 55% of Hispanic and Asian Trump supporters agreed with the statement that it's important to preserve and protect the European and Christian heritage of America, which is similar to the share of white Trump voters that agreed the same thing. And we see this in in many different kinds of questions. Uh, And so what's going on there is not that that these people think they're white, but it's much more that it's an attachment to particular traditions of ethnic composition, whereas what you see amongst liberal whites is much more of an attachment to an ethnic tradition of diversity. So that that 
diversity or plurality of groups is what makes America unique. And then you have, uh, and, and so minorities are, you know, you have a, a split really b between minorities who, who, who go along with um, the left modernist narrative uh, and minorities who are more attached to that ethno-traditional form of Americanism, let's say. Uh, and that's quite interesting. I mean, one of the points I often make is that uh, the split we see, if you take American politics, it's, it's a split over racial, uh, racial issues, but it's not a split over race. So actually... Um, the attitudes of groups towards each other is is not negative in the U.S. It's much more their views on things like affirmative action, immigration, uh, issues that touch on and pertain to race, but are not really about which group you belong to. So just to push back on that a little bit, if I was a critical race theorist, I would tell you that what's going on there is not that there is a genuine attachment, or, or maybe I might even say that the attachment to white symbols, white identity that these minorities have is a symptom of something like internalized white supremacy. Uh, how would you respond to that? Um, well, the issue I, I think the issue with a lot of critical race theory is around definition of terms measurement and falsifiability. So the first response is, you know, how might, could there be another explanation as opposed to internalized white supremacy? And how have you refuted the, those other explanations, right? How, how do we know when there is internalized rep, uh, white supremacies and when there isn't? And, and if it's not possible that there isn't, in other words, if by definition, any minority who's attached to uh, a, a, let's say a majority minority composition of, of being part of their American identity, that, that, that is by definition internalized white supremacy, then we have simply got an issue of confirmation bias. So you're starting with your conclusion and then you're just filtering evidence into that conclusion. So I think the, it's certainly a, a, a possible hypothesis. I would just want to know um, how do we measure this, this concept? What isn't internalized white supremacy that might explain the same outcome. And I think I think you'd pretty quickly run into the reality that there are no measures here that are falsifiable. Right. So there's an epistemic problem with a lot of the claims that they're making. There's sort of this miasma theory of um, of white supremacy that is sort of just, you know, in the air. It's it's it, because it's part of our history. It, it's inherent to everything about our culture. And therefore, it in fact, it sort of infects things. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it's, so go ahead. Sorry. Oh well, I was just I was just going to to say that um, one of the topics that you touch on, and and one of the things that's interesting is that you and the critical race theorists would agree on this, is that the definition of whiteness itself is a very amorphous sort of changing um, cult, like social phenomenon, um, and and that over time it has of course evolved to you know uh, to include you know um, you know, originally it was sort of Anglo-Saxon Protestants, um, and it's in expanded to include, you know, Catholics and Italians, um, Jews as well, um, like like myself, like yourself. We both have Jewish ancestry, um, mm -hmm. and uh, they they also talk about that a lot. Um, they talk about how you know it's it's not really just one thing; um, it's changed over time. And for them, this is evidence of sort of the falsity of 
or or the the negation of whiteness as a legitimate identity at all. Um, and for right. you, you see it actually as a way in which the concept of whiteness has expanded historically to include more groups and actually is likely to continue to expand. Um, do you want to talk about how uh, what what you see as the future for um, the changing demographics, um, particularly in the United States, with regard to uh, assimilating into white culture, white identity? Well, now, I think I actually think I don't agree with, and I've kind of had interactions with um, David Rodiger, who's a, a historian who who is sort of key to a lot of this whiteness study. He's not necessarily critical. Well, depends how you define critical race, but their idea is that there's this thing called whiteness that um, basically different groups bought into, found an advantage in buying into, and that the dominant group found an advantage in widening the boundaries. Um, I, I think that theory is wrong in many ways. Um, I think there's a distinction between I maintain a distinction between race and ethnicity. So you have uh, initially, I would say, you know, there was never really a time when um, Irish or other uh, white ethnic groups were not considered white. I mean, this is a bit of a fiction. And legally, in almost every way, Jews similarly were considered white under the American law. So actually, what you had was a, a, a majority ethnic group that was narrower than the racial group. So you had Jews and Catholics. Uh, who were racially white, but they weren't ethnically WASP or, or what was known as old American or Native American back then. Mm. Um, so you had a, the ethnic majority was narrower than the racial majority in, let us say, 1920. But now we're in a situation where the ethnic majority and the racial majority are almost coterminous. I mean, I think you would still say that there are certain white groups who would be, you know, maybe ultra-Orthodox Jews, uh, you know, are, are maybe not, or Amish, are, for whatever reason, not part of this ethnic majority. But in any case, race and ethnicity have come together much more than they had in the past. Uh, and I would argue in the future, what you're going to see is much more of a beijing uh, of this group, so that actually the racial white group is going to be smaller than the ethnic white group, if you like. Um, so I, I think, and I think the Rodiger, the kind of argument of the critical race theory is that, this, that whiteness is just this thing that's designed to keep blacks down. And, and, and I just think that's wrong on, on many, many levels. Um, for example, it isn't quite obvious why it suddenly became in the interests of whites to open up to Jews and Catholics after John F. Kennedy's uh, election. You know, sudden, why is it the case that suddenly the Catholics were now in um, and, and by the way, the same processes were occurring in Britain and Canada where, you know, there, it's not the case you had this racial minority that was growing and therefore the whites needed to expand their numbers by bringing in Catholics. So I think that's, that's sort of a very much instrumental argument, which I don't think holds water. I think what actually occurs is just a general uh, loose boundedness and more of a, a liberalization around intermarriage between Catholic and Protestant and Jew, you know, across much of the Anglosphere. And, and that's what accounts for this expansion of the boundaries of whiteness, if you want. I, I don't like that term whiteness because it's, yeah. it's blurring together both the racial and the ethnic. And I think those are, have to be kept separate. So, and, and what I'd simply say is, you know, ethnic groups tend to, depending on where you are, they have an assimilatory basis to them. So you could say the black 
ethnic group has also been assimilatory. There's clearly a lot of Native American and white and other elements in the African-American gene pool. Uh, and, and similarly, the white group is, is I think, going to undergo the same melting process. So I don't see there this sort of conspiratorial uh, power-based uh, approach as being particularly a useful way to understand either the past or the present. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you argue that what we think of as, uh, I, don't want, I don't know what other word to use, um, pure white identity or um, historically white identity uh, will will go into decline, except in some um, far-reaching uh, areas uh, of of places in the United States and in the UK, and that largely in 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 the big cities, you're going to see continue continual uh, uh, interracial marriage and race mixing. Um, but that the offshoot of this is going to be that. Um, minority groups that are closer um, in proximity to what would be viewed as white, that is, you know, in particular in the United States, Latinos, um, but also Asian, some Asians as well, um, and other groups are going to, uh, in your view, likely uh, begin identifying themselves as part of the white majority. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit? Well, yeah, so, so I think what you have when you've got a mixed population is you then have different ethnic options as to where you identify yourself. I mean, I think the Jews would be a good example where the identification goes through the mother's line, but clearly you might have uh, different origins on the father's line. Uh, so, so part of this is which myth of origin do you tend to gravitate towards? And Right. Am I um, Jewish or white? <laughs> well, no, no, not even that. But let's say your father was Italian and, and your mother was Jewish. You might say, well, I identify as Jewish. And you're kind of airbrushing that Italian out of the out of your, you know, it's just that your main identity would fall down on that one line. Now, of course, American, we know clearly the white population in the U.S. is heavily intermixed to the point where, you know, Almost nobody has four grandparents that are of this that are all Irish or all Italian. Uh, you know, so you've now got this situation where people have. I mean, Mary Waters has a book called Ethnic Options, which she wrote around 1990, where she explored which options people tended to choose. You know, if they were part Italian and part German, they somewhat more gravitated to the Italian. But of course, it depends on what the the spirit of the age is. Maybe at some some periods it may be more that people would gravitate towards the German. And, and so you, you've got this kind of ability to, uh, you know, to, to experiment or not experiment, but you have different options for how you're going to identify. Um, and that's sort of how I see it going forward, that you'll have this mixed population. So someone might have the option to identify as Hispanic or Asian or white. And, and how will they identify? I think right now when you have a clear white majority, um, what's different tends to be the, uh, you know, the Asian or the Latino. So that's maybe where identity will, is more likely to go. But I think increasingly over time and with the pull of the dominant culture that if anything in the future, I think the calculus will be the other way that people will look particularly around the world where European groups are simply going to be even smaller share of the, they're about 10% of the world it'll be down into single digits going forward uh, by 2050. And so I just think the distinctiveness will be much more in the uh, in the sort of majority um, tradition rather than in 
various kinds of, of, of different uh, groups. Now, another possibility for the U.S. is is that you might get something emerging like a mestizo, which you had in the in Mexico, which was a blend of the uh, conquistador and Aztec strain. Um, and so it might be that you know you've got an African American strain and you've got a European strain that that are that form the basis for this new hybrid. Uh, but I don't think you can generally. I don't think that. The full diversity, most of the diversity is going to be airbrushed out because that's just the way human psychology on these things works. And, you know, if you look at Turkey, for example, the Turks have have all kinds of different ethnic backgrounds, but their myth of origin takes them to Central Asia. And I, and I would think something similar in the case of uh, European societies or North America. There'll be this selection effect, and I think that the the kind of European ancestry, the, the majority ethnic uh, ancestry will be the one that sort of, or, or one of the key elements that is retained in these myths of origin. Yeah, so there's this origin myth um, that's around sort of maintaining um, identification with the white ethnicity um, through generations and ac across um uh, racial hybridizations and so forth. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to get to uh, with you just to debunk it kind of in real time, um, because it does <laughs> pop up in conversations, uh, particularly on the right. Um, I'll just say that uh, I myself got very interested in um, issues of nationalism and far right politics um, around the time right before Donald Trump um, got elected. Yeah. Um, and my main concern was actually just as a um, as someone with a Jewish family, uh, what was going to happen and whether or not um, aspects of the alt right, the far right, um, whites, white uh, identitarians um, were were actually a threat. And so I got very interested in this. But one of the pervasive uh, myths or tropes that is common in these circles is this idea of white genocide, which is yeah. this concept that the, as you already talked about, the declining birth rates, the increased immigration and so forth in, in particularly in Western Europe and in the United States and Canada and elsewhere, uh, is going to eventually lead to, you know, almost extinction, or maybe in some cases it, they would say extinction levels of, uh, of, um, of, the presence of white white ethnicity um and and this would be due to uh both the higher birth rates as well as the uh increasing rates of interracial marriage and in your book you actually i mean totally smash this argument do you want to just debunk that real quick yeah so i think there's two there's two issues one is again the race and the ethnicity need to be kept separate because the ethnicity is a subjective belief about origin so you can have a group that's actually completely racially mixed. I, I, I want to apologize if I keep conflating them. I'm just looking for no, the no, right No, 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 that's fine. No, that's fine. But I think that the, the sort of majority ethnicity can survive mass hybridization through the selection process, which I think will ultimately come to favor majority uh, ethnic myths and narratives and symbols. Um, so I think that is sort of what the book's focused on. Now, if you just take the racial side of this, um, even though races don't exist per se that, that I think race which is a sort of um, physical appearance it is a continuum 
but there is an association between, for example, hair color and eye color, uh, you know, or, or various different features, mm -hmm. even though there's a blending as you go from one region to the other. And so the boundaries between these groups are, are somewhat arbitrary. But um, if you take the historic kind of white racial group, you know, that's going to be in decline uh, in the West, say, in the next 100, 150 years. Uh, I think there's no doubt that that's, that is taking place. Um, now, again, with all the caveats about where you draw the, the physical racial boundaries uh, between whites and, say, Middle Easterners and Latinos and, and so on. Um, but still, I think that, that claim, um, you know, that claim is, is right. But I think the issue about the white genocide is, but of course, what, what I also mentioned in the book is that, that this is not for all time. You know, if you look at all of the sort of groups, almost all the groups that have very fast reproduction and high birth rates are almost all racially white, right? So the Amish and the Mormons and Hutterites and ultra-Orthodox Jews. And, and so a, a very different picture might emerge on the race front in, say, 200 years than in 100 years. But, but this is a kind of a whole other, other area. But I think the white genocide, because the claim there is, is very much that there's a conspiracy. Often Jews are involved or, or George Soros is involved or, you know, that, that there's somehow this plot to deliberately uh, somehow eliminate the white race. And, and it's that sort of deliberate planned nature of things, which I think really gets at the, at the conspiracy. Um, the only part of the, you know, what I mentioned in the book is that the, what will happen with the white genocide theories, they'll start off with something that is reasonable, which is that groups are not treated equally. And this is one of the dangers, I think, in asymmetrical multiculturalism. It kind of opens the door then. Once they hook you on that, which is in fact is in fact true, then they start to bring in the Jews and, and you know, uh, the cosmopolitans and all these people who are uh, trying to, to, to more or less lead to the elimination of, of the white race. And this is where the uh, conspiratorial part of it. In fact, uh, I, uh, my argument would simply be that these are just processes that are occurring um, largely because of, you know, economic forces that, that there's a demand for labor and there's a, a clearly Europe is not producing it, the immigrants that it once produced. Um, and so on the back of that, you're going to get large scale, uh, you know, you're going to get ethnic change and then melting and mixing. And, and um, but I think the big issue with the, the white genocide theory is these, the sort of planned, deliberate conspiratorial uh, hypothesis that it brings forward. Well, but you could understand how when there is this asymmetry, especially in the cultural conversation, it, it does it would it would seem uh, like there is, you know, among the elites, among the cosmopolitans, really among, you know, the people that are running things uh, that that white people in general are derided that. And, and when you couple that with this observation about the the population change. Um, I don't think it's too far of a stretch for them to then start to move into this, you know, this conspiratorial space. Um, but yeah. I, I want I mean, I know. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, I think that's right. I, mean, I, I, I think sort of more of a, a wide angle lens on history would show that, in fact, these sorts of mixing processes have occurred at a large scale uh, throughout much of history, right? So, so if you were really to scratch the DNA of a Turk or a Greek or a Persian, you would see the evidence of all this 
mixing. Um, so I, I, I guess I'd see, see it as a much more uh, sort of spontaneous type of process. But of course, the, the, the rate and the level of immigration, uh, you know, has been higher because of left modernism, for example. Um, you know, that, that is, that's certainly the, the case. But I think any, any notion that I mean, part of this gets to this idea of ethnicity and versus race. You know, my my view is that that you know ethnic groups through history have always been absorptive and assimilative, uh, and that that's but that's very distinct from from race, which is uh, you know much much less so, if you like. Um, and so long as you're tying ethnicity to a pure purest racially purest uh, concept, which the, the alt right does, so it sees white as you know, unmixed white, if you like, then there's going to be a, you know, of course, they're going to see a, a huge problem and a huge conspiracy. Right. So you reference your own um, mixed race heritage. Um, I believe you, not only are you Jewish, but also there's some Latino and Chinese ancestry in there as well. Um, yeah. I myself, you know, wouldn't be entirely white by any standard, um, <laughs> given that ha half of me is Jewish and the other half is some mix of a bunch of uh, most likely European places, although I haven't done a, a DNA test. Um, uh, you th I, I want to just cap this off by getting into what you see as the future. I see in the book you, you sort of making the case that there are these kind of um, – almost like punctuated equilibriums to use a, a biology term um, in the way that these um, these processes play out. Um, and you think that the answer to these concerns about white ethnicity and the decline of white majorities uh, in terms of avoiding the pitfalls of extremism is to embrace what you've said is this symmetrical multiculturalism. Uh, what do you what do you think is the solution to all this? Well, yeah, I, I think part of this is about yes, is is to 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 try and remove the asymmetrical treatment of um, ethnic identity between majority and minority, uh, and to remove the toxicity that attaches to identification with um, ethnic majorities that happen to be white. So, I think that that's a very important step to take. Now, I'm not saying everybody. Uh, needs to ident you know, identify uh, with a group. In fact, you know, there are people who, it's a bit like extended family. Some people have a very weak identity with their extended family, and some have a strong identity. I think we need to be tolerant of both. What, what we can't tolerate is hatred of, of the other, um, or I think a sort of attachment to a very reified, purified notion of race. You know, I think that also is uh, dangerous. I, I, I think the, the key here is simply to, to aim for uh, tolerating um, common humanity forms of identity and not encouraging common enemy forms of identity. Um, and, and so, and I, I do think we've got a long way to go to accepting that some people are attached to ascribed identities, and that includes members of majority groups, not just minorities to accept uh, majorities who identify with their ascribed identities. I think that's actually crucial because without that, by trying to sort of deny, suppress, uh, not recognize um, those identities, I think what you're doing is you're then leading to a return of the repressed in, in other forms. I, I think to some degree, hyper-partisanship is um, 
a kind of a return of the repressed, uh, you know, that, that, that a lot of the issues that underlie this hyperpartisanship are kind of race inflected. And so, so one of them might be uh, people who are attached to the country the way it was, not wanting as change to be as quick, not wanting as much immigration. That there has to be a legitimate space for that. Instead of saying, you know, you're either you're either open or you're closed. Well, actually, a lot of people want it faster or slower. The people who want it, so it's not that they want zero immigration. Most 75% upwards of populist right voters in, in Europe and the US, they're not in favor of zero immigration. They're not anti-intermarriage. It's all about saying, what is the speed of change? Uh, how do we balance assimilation with immigration? Um, there right now on the left isn't any toleration for that kind of nuance. It's a very black and white totalizing view that, that says you've either got to be open. Uh, if you're not open, you're not with us and you're a reprobate, right? So that mm -hmm. getting away from that very kind of um, binary world totalizing worldview, I think is important. Uh, it, we're not going to solve the issue of polarization until there is some scaling back of this uh, toxification, if you like, of uh, majority communitarian identity. I just don't see any way out of that. There has been, there's going to have to be, I think, um, less of a doctrinaire approach, less of a conflation of attachment to and hatred of, which, which we know, again, from the, the literature, that is a bogus conflation, and yet that is the automatic reflex. And, and part of the problem here, I think it gets deep into the reasons why left modernism is successful is because of the control of, uh, you know, because of its success within culture industries. And so a lot of literature and movies and, and so on, advertisements, um, subscribe to, or, or at least they kind of play on this idea that majorities are oppressive and dangerous and, and you've got to be suspicious of them. And then at any moment, they're going to lapse into genocide or into uh, discrimination. And, and on the converse, well, and the, the side, Nazi, the Nazi trope since right. World War II just gets trotted out at every opportunity. It's like the only thing you're allowed to hate is Nazis. Yeah. So it sort of becomes the um, the the foil for all kinds of uh, aggressions and tensions and negative things that you can't really direct anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think this is it, right? So I think, you know, the, who are the villains? Tip, I mean, typically the script for uh, a political kind of movie will be some kind of a white savior figure in, as a lead, uh, you know, maybe like a Schindler in a Schindler's List, or which, of course, Schindler is great. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying don't tell these stories, but I think what, what I think what I worry about is we're not hearing enough about the excesses, the stories about... Mao and the Chinese Cultural Revolution and Orwell and, and Stalin. There's no balance. It's simply, you know, you don't have the lead character fighting against the Chinese Cultural Revolution and, and pointing to the excesses of utopian ideology. I mean, that's not in the popular culture the same way the Nazi or, or Jim Crow anti-slavery trope is in the, in the and, and we need both. I'm not saying get rid of them. It's, mm. it's all about, however, understanding the nuance. So, we, for example, if you study genocide systematically, um, there have been studies, genocidal events post-Second World War, for example, um, you know, ethnic exclusion is, is no more likely to be a cause of genocide than other kinds of exclusion based on ideology and politics. And, and yet, you know, typically when people think genocide, it's immediately, well, this has to be linked to ethnic majoritarianism or racism, but actually that's not 
correlated any more than, for example, uh, political ideology, socialism, for example, with genocide. So, you know, and, and the other thing is, of course, just because someone's a socialist doesn't mean they're going to turn into Stalin. And it's a lot of the slippery slope type of argument. You can have moderate forms of socialism, moderate for, or, or, or let's say social democracy, you can have moderate forms of ethnic identification. And that's been the norm through through most of the world, most of the time. It's not leading everywhere to collapse into genocide. And, and so I think that there's been a very dishonest kind of way in which the worst fears are used to kind of justify a slippery slope type reasoning where, you know, give an inch and then pretty soon we're going to have gulags and concentration camps. I, I just think that's very dishonest, a dishonest form of, of de debate. We have to get to a more kind of shades of gray nuance position where we can say, yeah, okay, there's some people who want change to be slower, who do identify more with ascribed identity. That's fine uh, as long as they're not um, you know, disliking, hating, whatever, discriminating against um, other people, you know, so, so, so this is, it's also, it's partly about getting this thing, recognizing that you can have a moderate form of the right as well as a moderate form of the left. Yeah, and uh, I think that, I think that to get past all these issues, um, both the extremism on the left and the right, the political polarization, um, as well as, um, you know, racial issues that are, long seated in, in places like the United States and the UK and that um, seem to be getting torn open continuously um, at almost almost for fun these days uh, <laughs> is is really just to see the humanity in each other. Um, and yeah. that's what I liked a lot about your book. It takes this um, very humanitarian um, approach to addressing these issues. You know, you're saying that, look, there are legitimate concerns that these um, these majorities have, that these ethnicities have. And we need to be able to talk to one another and we need to be able to openly and publicly voice these concerns and not treat each other as the other, treat each other as differently if we're going to actually, you know, live cooperatively in a pluralistic society. Um, yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, we have to do for for politics and ideology what, what we've done for race. And, and that is to recognize that there is bias and discrimination uh, and, and it's very, very difficult for, uh, and now if we, because the elite institutions tend to be more dominated by the left, I mean, it's very difficult for them to accept the legitimacy of cult, particularly cultural conservatism, um, this idea of not wanting change. And yet we Money know from slower. the psychology um, that this is about 50, you know, whether you are oriented to, whether you see change as interesting or change as loss. Uh, difference as stimulating or or as disorder, you know, that is sort of 50 percent inherited, heritable. It, it's deep wired in, in a lot of people. And so, you know, to actually try and castigate, uh, you know, that chunk of, of the electorate uh, who are it's a, it's like saying you should love, I don't know, sardines when, you know, some people are simply going to to like sardines and some are not going to like sardines. Now, you have to tolerate difference in diversity. That's central to liberalism. But to say you have to celebrate and prefer uh, difference in diversity is simply going against the grain, deep-rooted grain of, of a significant chunk of people. And I think that's it's actually compulsive and sort of not the right approach. You need to you need to be able to be more accepting politically, um, and that's really going to be a challenge to progressivism because progressivism is very much setting the tone in our. Uh, cultural institutions and doesn't seem to see this blind spot uh, and it's really quite remarkable that even though lots of experiments 
psychological experiments show this quite these quite stunning blind spots and biases. Um, you know, for example, I, I, we can think all think of the experiments, but um, you know, people on the left are as biased as those on the right, and yet this political bias simply escapes uh, scrutiny the same way that the racial biases escaped scrutiny. So uh, we, until we start to confront that problem, I think we're going to, we're going to be in the mess we're in. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for writing the book uh, that you did. I think if more people read it, we might uh, be able to start working on these problems a little bit sooner um, because you certainly presented a, a fair minded and well-reasoned and well, um, uh, well substantiated approach to uh, this entire, you know, the entire um, collection of ideas around this topic. Um, thank you so much, Eric. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. All right. Take care. Goodbye. You too.